I don't fear uh, conservative Protestants anymore. And um, as someone on the right um, that's been targeted for cancellation, you know, I do tell them, I'm like, you know, you might think I'm going to hell, uh, but, um, you know, <laughs> we, we got the same enemies at this point. Um, so you guys need to, like, chill out. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm continuing my series on evolution and creationism, and I'd like to dig a little deeper into the evidence supporting evolution and universal common descent. In my opinion, the strongest evidence in favor of evolution right now is the emerging and exploding scientific field of genetics and resulting from the advances in genome sequencing. Today's interview is from someone whose writing I stumbled across on Cicero.ly, and I'm hoping to get a broad overview of the impact of modern genetics on the debate regarding evolution and creationism from someone who's been following the field closely. As always, if you like what you're hearing, I'd love to see you press like on your podcast app, uh, share the episode with your friends, post about it on your social media feed. I'd love to do that. Uh, come visit my website at www.therationalview.ca. Razib Khan is a geneticist. He's written for the New York Times, India Today, and Quillette, and runs two weblogs, Gene Expression and Brown Pundits. His newsletter is Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Razib, welcome to The Rational View. Hey, what's up, Al? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's a... Uh... You know, it's not a cold winter really here in Austin, but we got a cold couple of days. So, um, you know, in terms of weather, it's okay. It's minus 32 this morning here. That hurts to breathe. <laughs> it's probably it's probably it's probably 32 here. So uh, that's really low in Austin. Okay. So before we get started, I'd like to address an issue that I'm sure you're aware of. I discovered your Wikipedia page. And on it, Michael Schulson is referenced there as saying, your career is an example of the murky line between mainstream science and scientific racism. Now, this is a troubling statement. Why would he say that? Uh, you know, I've written for publications that have gone in different directions over the years, uh, over the last 20 years. So, I mean, that's the primary reason. Mostly it's because the New York Times hired me in 2015. And if you want me to be totally candid, um, someone like me should not be working for the New York Times. So, of course, they unloaded everything that they could. So that's that. So I brought you on to discuss genetic science and the evidence for evolution. I've been exploring evolution and in light of the evolution and creationism contro so-called controversy. But the field of genetics has exploded recently, after the, I think after the Human Genome Project. What excites you most in this field right now? Um, we basically know um, the whole history. Well, we can know the whole history of the human past. Uh, if we want to, because of ancient DNA, at least in terms of the demographic and cultural, um, you know, let's say biocultural complexities, because we don't know the languages that people are speaking 30,000 years ago. But to give your, uh, you know, your listeners, your viewers a concrete example, um, you know, we know exactly the demographic turnover in Pleistocene Europe uh, to like maybe 90 percent precision now in terms of there was the initial modern human incursion. 
uh, 40,000 years ago, they left no descendants in Europe. Wow. Like they're as genetically related to East Asians as modern Europeans. They left no descendants. The second wave um, associated with the Gravitian culture, which if your listeners have um, read Clan of the, well, maybe a, a little earlier than Clan of the Cave Bear, but the Gravitian culture is like the classic mammoth hunters. Okay. You know, so a lot of the things in Clan of the Cave Bear of the modern humans are actually more Gravitian than their Adagnation, which is the culture that really interacted with the Neanderthals. But in any case, um, this culture left only a minor imprint genetically. And then the Magdalenians uh, depicted in a movie about uh, like a, a boy and his um, kind of pet wolf. Like that's 18,000 years ago. They left a minor impact. And so most of the hunter-gatherer ancestry in Europe, for example, dates after the last glacial maximum, like 15,000 years ago. So, you know, that's a fact. Most of the ancestry in Europe doesn't date to hunter-gatherers, right? The people who built Stonehenge are genetically closest to modern Sardinians, not modern British people. Like These are all the facts that I can just throw out there. Wow. Easily, trivially, I can reanalyze them. And that's because of ancient DNA, what's happened in the last 10 years. So this information is coming from, how, how do they get this information? Is it from sampling uh, bodies that they've dug up uh, from those periods? Or, or what, what, where does it come from? Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, archaeologists have been digging up uh, bodies and uh, fossils and other things. Uh, for decades, well, for centuries in parts of Northern Europe where archaeology and antiquarianism have been around for a while. And so, you know, you take some of these samples and you see if there's any uh, preserved DNA left in them. So these are called uh, subfossils. They're not like dinosaurs. They're not totally mineralized. So obviously when you have a mammoth that's like, you know, 10,000 years old, it was like frozen. Uh, there's a lot of degradation, but there's still some DNA. DNA is a very robust macromolecule. This is why it's a substrate of inheritance. If DNA wasn't robust, it wouldn't be as useful as a substrate of inheritance because you want information to be preserved with a high fidelity and you don't want it to get like messed up in the cell while it's in the cell, right? So over time, you get older, mutations build up, people get cancer, stuff happens. But if DNA was very, very um, weak uh, with like, you know, structurally was not very sound, I mean, we wouldn't be around. It, it just wouldn't work as a – so RNA, for example, um, is, is structurally, like, very, very evanescent. Like, it fades away really immediately. Mm -hmm. um, yes. It's just uh, RNA is a ribosomal, uh, you know, nuclear material that transmits uh, from DNA to RNA to protein. Uh, so the DNA is, like, the permanent stuff, the permanent sequence. The RNA is what's transcribed mm -hmm. uh, to translate into proteins. And so um, the DNA is you can like with the oldest DNA that we've gotten so far is from a nine hundred thousand year old horse from Siberia for the Tamir Peninsula. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's probably the edge of possibility, but never say never. Like um, they figured out new technologies, new ways to get DNA out of like um, the hyoid bone. I think it's in the inner ear, other things like that. Obviously, the tooth, like tooth enamel. Um, it can be like sealed away. So um, there's just a lot of technological possibilities there. Aside from DNA, um, they're using proteins as well now. Proteins can be preserved even longer than DNA. They don't give you as much information, but proteins, um, what I've heard talking to people, there's optimism that proteins can go back 5 million years, which is before the Pleistocene. Wow. Now this... This is this is big long time scales, but it still doesn't get us to Jurassic Park, right? We're talking sixty five million years for that. Yeah, so there's one laboratory in um there's one laboratory in uh in North Carolina State that claims that they're getting proteins out of dinosaurs, but nobody really believes them. So, uh, okay. Honestly. That's I it's not my field, but nobody can replicate it. So um That's that's suspicious indeed. 
Okay. Um, so this is really exciting. So we can actually track uh, the history of like this is this is paleo history of, of human evolution or human migration, I guess, uh, just by tracking the DNA. That's 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 incredible. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're if if. if the people are following you, uh, they, they want to see. Uh, so I've, you know, written a lot about it on my blog, but if you go to my Substack, Razib.substack.com, um, I have been writing about like, so for example, I wrote a two-parter uh, about like mm, 8,000 some words uh, on Anglo-Saxons. Uh, and so basically, concretely, to, t- to to give your listeners a sense of what I'm interested in, well, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things. I'm interested in selection. Uh, I'm interested in, I'm, you know, conservative politics, whatever. I mostly write about paleo history on my Substack because that's where I add value, where I can just tell you things you never heard. So, like, you know, there's two stylized extreme ideas. Anglo-Saxons totally re- replaced indigenous British people, the Celtic-speaking people, or uh, they were an elite, you know, like 10,000 mercenaries, Angus and Horsa and clan uh, that slowly culturally, like, dominated the local people, right? What turns out that the true answer is in the middle, um, that about, like, say – you know, depending on where you are, like probably 30 to 40 percent of the ancestry in England, Wales and Cornwall and Scotland, probably, too, uh, is probably Anglo-Saxon, quote unquote, Anglo-Saxon, the Utes, the Anglis and the Saxons that come from northern Germany, southern Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the ancestor probably dates to the Iron Age Celts. Right. So the answer is in the middle. Um, you know, in my post, I outlined the dynamics. But demographically, we got the we got the answer. Once you have the demographics then you can talk about how things happen culturally and um it's one of those issues where archaeology combined with DNA, combined with when we have it, linguistics and history are much more powerful than the fields individually. They like hold together synthetically uh, as a unit and they give a great deal of insight. Now, that's really interesting to, to be able to to say definitively what, what you know, answer these questions. This, we're actually answering historical questions that have been posed by archaeology using the science of genetics is it is that yeah you can do deep hypothesis testing we have them we have the methods to test the hypotheses really robustly so what new thing what what other new things have we learned about evolution in the field of genetics what what have, have we learned anything new yeah well if you're talking about like besides humans for example um one issue is in the 1970s there's a huge argument about whether genomic evolution, well, I mean, they didn't use the word genome, uh, but molecular evolution, sequences, um, whether it was mostly determined by random genetic drift or natural selection. So this was an argument between people like, you know, Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bigger term was like the neutralism, you know, neutral theory controversy. Is evolution mostly a neutral process or is it mostly a directed selective process? Um, The TLDR on that is we don't really, I mean, the genomics people that I know don't really have a discussion about this anymore because we have so much data. You can just test uh, the hypotheses on any given lineage. So um, there are species that have small populations that are drift-dominated because small populations are more random. And then there are species that large populations that are selection-dominated because large populations don't evolve in a random way. And so... Let, you know, this is like Leibniz's classically quip, let us compute. We're at the let us compute stage. Okay. So yeah. instead of like having like philosophical arguments, we actually test data because we got so much of it. Wow. Yeah. That, that that's really what I what I see in the field. It seems like a very lively field, and if you just you just search a few articles, and there's so many interesting things coming out of it that it's like, wow, this is great. You know, just I love I love when you can answer questions with science, and 
from my impression that that tells you that you're on the right path because we're we're learning things that are just um so amazing right now in the field i've looked at um endogenous retroviruses in in the genomes showing common ancestry between humans and chimpanzees i've i've looked at um you know ancestral protein reconstruction articles mm-hmm. which is amazing and you know you can sample the the gene sequences of extant species and from that mathematically predict what their the the gene sequence was in their last common ancestor and then build that protein <laughs> yeah i think that's uh, i think that's joe thornton's work at university of chicago now and he was at oregon and i actually was uh, a student of his at one point undergrad oh okay but um he's a good guy really fascinating work um i did uh I did use one of his computers in the computer room one time, and I and I um uh, I uh, crashed a simulation. <laughs> he just came in. And he's like, "Are you doing something?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm just like working on my homework." And he's like, "I'm using these." And I was like, "Okay, well, if you're gonna parallelize, you know what I'm saying, bro?" It's like, <laughs> like put a password on it. I'm here, you know. Anyway, cool. So. Uh- Preparing and preparing for this interview, I noticed that you made news uh, when you sequenced your son's full genome in utero. Yeah, that is, was a first, right? This has never been has this never been done before. You were the first person to do this. For, so my son, my older son, I have two. My older son is the first human being born alive who was whole genome sequenced before he was born. There were there were um, in non viable pregnancies where sequencing had occurred, uh, you know, like you know, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the way I'll say it. Right. So I mean, that that seems like a potentially dangerous thing to do. What what drove you to do that? Why did you Why did you go ahead and do that? Why 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 Why, why would it be dangerous? I don't know. Any, from my limited understanding, anytime you're sampling in in utero, you 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 put potentially pose a risk what was behind that yeah so there's two ways to think about this um there was a potential risk uh with the way you're talking about way i did it but right now what they're actually doing and what will happen is probably sampling out of the mother's blood non-invasive sequencing Ah. uh it's 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 strong enough to detect down syndrome now which is why like most down syndrome uh, pregnancies are terminated they're aborted in the united states now they just do a blood draw from the mother second trimester early second trimester and they you know that's they just get it from the blood um, and they will do that. Um, so uh, the uh, Jay Chanduri's lab in Washington, University of Washington is working on that. So that'll come out. Um, so what we did is um, chorionic villi sampling. It wasn't amniotic, actually. It was chorionic villi sampling, which goes at like some sort of placental tissue. Okay. Uh, there is some evidence. There is some evidence in the literature of elevated miscarriage rates. But um, I don't really believe uh, that that's true because a lot of these things have ascertainment bias and what type of populations are being sampled. So what, what subset of mothers do the chorionic villi sampling is not a random subset of the mothers. And so I didn't actually, I don't think that the risk was actually any higher to be candid. Okay. Okay. And so what were you hoping? It was basically just a precautionary measure to, to, to see if there are any problems early on. Is that your plan? I mean, honestly, uh, most because it was cool. Um, I, I thought someone had done it before. So I was like, Oh, can I do it? I was in grad school at the time, and uh, I was, like, working on whole genome sequences, and uh, I was like, oh, it would be cool to get, um, it, you know, cause, like, because, like, okay, like, I'm in grad school. We have laboratory. We have facilities and abilities to just, like, amp- do this. Okay. And also, like, my, 
Also, the, the fetus was in utero. It's not. I mean, it's not legally a human yet. Sure. I mean, I mean, you could terminate. You could you could abort the fetus. Mm-hmm. So, if you can kill the fetus, why can't you sequence the fetus? What's what's the deal? So you got some flack for that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of people were freaking out, but I mean, whatever. It's like um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people like in academia, they talk about eugenics and stuff. But like, you know, most academics do eugenics themselves in terms of like a lot of them have children. A lot of them, you know, either themselves or they're, they're you know, whatever. Uh, they have children later on in life. OK, so you don't think they're doing non-invasive prenatal sequencing. They're all doing it. And what do you think? What do you think they're doing when they have down, when they have a, a down, positive for Down syndrome? I want to see how many academics are raising kids with Down syndrome. Mm. That will tell you what they're doing. When I point this out, they never. When I point this out on social media, they never respond. So they are exactly doing what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you worried about the 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 implications of this at all? Or are you behind the idea of eugenics? What's your position on 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 responding to various things, or or maybe even genetically altering things that are that you don't like in the genome? Yeah, so I mean, we're going to genetically alter people with Down with uh, not Down syndrome, but uh, cystic fibrosis uh, and ALS. So, like CRISPR genetic engineering, that's going to happen uh, because these people, as adults, they're going to die early if you don't. So these are the first. These are the first humans. I mean, there's already been some New York Times published trials on uh, a girl cured of sickle cell. Okay, um, there's a lot of uh, adult uh, Mendelian diseases that people are carrying around. So I had an acquaintance, um, and for whatever reason. Um, the genetic test did not pick up uh, that uh, this this infant uh, had cystic fibrosis. And this guy is like asking me, um, you know, how will we make sure that our daughter has a good, good life? And I said, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think she'll have cystic fibrosis by the time she's 30 hmm. because she's going to get genetically engineered. She's going to she's never going to be a marathon runner. What they're going to do is they're going to do some sort of targeting of this tissue in her lungs and genetically repair some of these cells. Like, she has two bad mutations. They're going to transfect somehow uh, the cells. Uh, you know, they're going to CRISPR cut out and put in uh, good copies. And once you have, like, 10% of your lung tissue being back to normal, you're never going to be a marathon runner. You're never going to be a great endurance athlete. But you're probably going to live your whole life. Yeah. Right Right now, people, people with cystic fibrosis die usually between 40 and 50, I think. Mm. Hmm. So you're in your opinion, they're going to have the technology to be able to fix this in, in exist in living people. You know, this is, you know, altering a few of in the, the next cells. 10 years, in the next 10 years. Wow. I think in the next 10 years, I predict the cystic fibrosis will be cured functionally. Wow. Like, in, cause and, and we'll, you'll target adults. You'll target like, you'll target like 40 year old adults with cystic fibrosis who are at the end of their life. Mm-hmm. So that if there's a problem and there are problems. And so that's why people are very cautious about it. But if you're on death's door, um, and then there's cancer, like with cancers and stuff, I, I'm assuming that that will be also targeted with genetic engineering at some point. But that's cancer is harder than cystic fibrosis because with cystic fibrosis, you just like you got all your lung tissue has like bad mutational cells. I think it's the CFTR gene. Um, anyway, like you're just you're dying because your lungs just cannot function correctly. So if you had like just some normal functional cells, that'll be good enough because most of the time you're not like running a marathon. You're not sprinting. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to breathe, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that's going to happen. Um, ALS, uh, which is a muscular de- neurodegenerative muscular musculoskeletal disease. Um, I think that will that actually I know that's being uh, that that is being genetic engineering through CRISPR Cas9. They are doing trials in in dogs because dogs have big muscles 
and sort of the good model organism, and some of them have ALS, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That, that's that's definitely uh, amazing to to learn that they're that close to to being able to genetically alter living humans, and then of course the next step is looking at uh, germline mutation or fixing germline mutations in mm-hmm. these. Yeah, that that is a, that would be the like if you want to like tell tell your listener or viewer what what germline because like it's important distinction somatic versus germline. Please go right? ahead and, and give us the geneticist. Okay, so basically, so yeah, somatic is just like your regular cell tissues that aren't being passed on to the next generation. Germline would be sperm or eggs, right? It would be like sex cells, basically, that are passed to the next t- next generation. And so, uh, germline editing would be um, uh, let's give like a concrete example. You got an embryo, it's a test tube baby, and it's got like some cells now, it's, re- it's reproduced to some level, and um, you transfect it, or you edit it, um, to fix all of its mutations. Because you, what you can do is, you can get a whole genome sequence of something from the embryo, get a whole genome sequence, and, um, and then take that whole genome sequence, find all of the editing errors, and then from that... Um, you can fix the errors in theory. Uh, this is going to happen probably in like 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, it's going to be later depending on where you are and who you are um, because the issue is uh, what we call off-target effects, uh, which is basically like, oh, it edits something else. It causes another problem like a cancer or something like that, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you don't want that. You don't want that. So This is starting to sound a little bit like a Black Mirror episode that I watch. Uh, and obviously you have um, a lot of science fiction about um, eugenics, about, you know, you have to be perfect. You, and and the, the difference is is then called out. Um, it's, it's a bit of a slippery slope. You need to – what's your, what's your opinion on um, affecting disease genes versus – um, just affecting the the actual uh, every, everything else about about the uh, the germline. Yeah, so I think everything disease is going to be hit first. Um, I don't think you're going to have huge arguments about disease. Um, I do think genetic screening is going to be like the first thing that you do. So when it comes to the germline, probably you're not going to edit embryos for a long time. Okay. Like what you're going to do is select from a bunch of embryos. I see. Okay. So if you have two copies of so, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to select through screening first. I think that's going to be happening first, probably for the next 10 years. And then some people want to edit embryos. What they're going to do is like, oh, I don't have a perfect embryo, so I'm going to take the best embryo, and then I'm going to edit it. That's what they'll think. Um, and so and what I personally think about it, because I think you've asked a couple times, uh, I'm pretty much a genetic libertarian at this point, but I'm open to legislation. But um, basically, we just need to have a conversation about it and not be hysterical. I don't think people are actually being super honest about what's going on yeah. right now. Um, when a lot of academics talk about eugenics, like I said, uh, they actually do it all the time. They're just using a buzzword, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, what does eugenics mean? Is you know, screening Down syndrome eugenics or not? Um, that's a debate you can have. Um, you know, I heard like there's some diets that are like eugenics because they're anti-fat person or so. I don't know, just stupid things like that. Uh, some academics like engage in that sort of talk, you know. So let's be precise about what we mean by eugenics. Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? What's the legislation? What's the moral impact? Um, you know, we don't want everyone to turn into a clone. There are some genetic reasons for that, like everyone to turn look exactly the same and have the exact same genes. So there might be an issue where. So there are possibilities. So I'm a genetic libertarian. Like I'm like. Uh, individual choice first and foremost, but there are issues where there might be coordination or collective action problems where you don't want everybody 
to have the exact same genome. You don't want all humans to be exactly the same, right? But if everybody wants this exact same perfect human, like, you know, maybe all everyone's going to edit that way. So you just, you just have to, like, think about it and um, set up society in a way where this is fair, this is just, and this is best for everybody. But, um, again, it requires rational discussion. Well, that's what we're here for at The Rational View is to, is to open up these issues and discuss them and, and listen to people's opinions and, and figure out where we should be going. So this is, this, is, this is not the direction I thought this interview would be going, but it's very interesting. And I think it, it's, uh, as you say, this is a, an emerging field that has important repercussions for health. And, and it also has a lot of moral issues that people are going to be worried about. And we should make, make sure that we're very clear, as you say, because... You're right. There are there are people selecting embryos now on the basis of of trisomy twenty three or on, on on the basis of Down syndrome, basically. Uh, and is that eugenics or is it not eugenics? That's a very good question. It's a and it's a difficult thing that any parent has to has to deal with. You know, do you do you look? Do you check beforehand? How would you feel? Uh, are you prepared to have a child with Down syndrome? Uh, and and support that for for their life. That that's a that's a very difficult thing that parents have to have to deal with. Yeah, but I mean, as I said, we do actually know the empirical. I mean, it depends on the country, depends on the subculture, subpopulation. But we know, on the whole, yes, people are willing to check, and on the whole, people do not want children with Down syndrome by the choices that they make in the United States. Um, as you know, I mean, you guys can go to Google. Uh, there's hardly any babies born with Down, in Down syndrome in Denmark at all. Hmm. Because the, there are so few pro-life Danes. So um, I had a, uh, you know, I'm not going to name him at all, so I think I can say this. I had a friend, and his child had, um, it wasn't Down syndrome. It was something actually way worse. And um, I'm using past tense because it was something way worse. Okay? The child's not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, um, you know, he's, his wife is pro-life. He's pro-life. Uh, there was no option for them there's no choice that they were going to make that was different than bringing the child to term and, you know, what happened happened. So people are going to make that choice. Um, as I said, I think people should be allowed to make that choice and people should be allowed to make the other choice. That's my opinion. But again, just my opinion and different societies are going to make different choices based on their values. Sure. Like if you're pro-life, uh, you're never going to want this to be a choice at all. But that is, the issue is not the eugenic aspect for them. The issue is they think it's a life, right? So Okay. Yeah, no, uh, and indeed, that there's definitely uh, religion that that intertwines with this, and people's opinion on when life begins is 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 also a politically fraught issue that that people have to deal with, uh, especially in the U.S. The the, the big push for uh, for uh, against the uh, or the pro-life push, I guess, as they call it, against the pro-choice movement, uh, very highly uh, polarized debate in the U.S. Maybe not in other in other areas as much, but it seems to be uh, at the root of a lot of uh, people's fears right now with all the the political situation there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. Although, yeah, pro life and pro pro choice, by the way, is like one thing in the United States that has stayed polarized. Like stuff like gay rights and all that have changed, right? But on abortion, nothing's changed. So maybe getting back to evolution and creationism, have, have you encountered uh, creationism in your in your writing? Have you ever tackled that issue, or, or do you stay away from that one? I used to back in the day. A lot of us in the uh, you know bio sci online communication sphere come out of um, Usenet groups like Talk Origins, 
you know? Yeah, yeah, I was and there. So, you know, though. Okay, so those those are debates. I mean, yeah, maybe we remember. I mean, were you in the atheism Usenet groups? Not really. Not, okay. Not at the time. But anyway, so yeah, you know, atheism talk origins. All these groups. Uh, a lot of us were in there. You know, some of us grew up in very. Cons- I did grow up in very conservative areas. There's a lot of creationists. These are day to day debates that we would have, and kind of like added to the armamentarium uh, of our ability to discuss these things. You know, obviously there are books you can read. Uh, like I think Robert Pennock's book was was a really good one. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff you can read, but also like online and the news groups and so. Uh, but you know, creationism is not a major issue in the United States, in my opinion, anymore, just because we're just so much less religious. When I was a kid, I mean, when you were a kid, right? Like uh, when we were both kids, it was like 10% of people said that they had no religion, and today it's like 30%. Um, I'm a Republican. I'm conservative. Uh, I can tell you, like in 2008, I had a a blog about like you know non-religious conservatives, and that was like big controversy on the right. And in 2011, the New York Times profiled me as like a conservative atheist, along with Heather McDonald and a few other people. And um, it was just a big deal back then. Today, it's not a big deal. There's a lot of people uh, on the right who are openly now not religious, whereas in the past they were just closeted. And so even on the right, things have changed. On the left. Um, I honestly think if you're an evangelical Christian, it would probably be a little uncomfortable unless you were an ethnic minority. You don't you don't feel uncomfortable being a, a, an atheistic uh, Republican? No, because like um, I'm OK with making people uncomfortable. So if they want to make me uncomfortable, that's fine. I'll argue with you. <laughs> OK, like I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem. Like I grew up in eastern Oregon. Uh, as an atheist, so I had never had a problem arguing with people about that. And uh, you can imagine uh, most people in Eastern Oregon do not look like me. Uh, like, you know, my local hometown paper had an article called uh, The Blacks of Union County, and it profiled all 15 of them. Seven of them, seven of them were, were members of one family. So, oh, my. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm used to being in the minority. I don't, I don't back off. Yeah, so I, I, I also, uh, you know, went – was on talked out origins back in the day. And, and, you know, that it seemed like a much more topical uh, argument back then than it is now. And I agree. It seems like the, 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 the social argument on evolution and creation has moved on. It's not as big of an issue as it once was. Um, although, you know, it's, there's still a, a core uh, group of fundamentalists led by Ken Ham and his ARC experience group in Kentucky, I think, that are pushing that. I, they're, they're refugees from the 20th century. Yeah. You know, it, it, feels, it, or it feels a very 2006 vibe. You know, in terms of just like, oh, it's like Richard Dawkins, the root of all evil, that whole scene, which was interesting. And it was at that, you know, there was a, a generation ago, half a generation ago, it was still a live debate whether the evangelicals and the conservative Christians in the country could be culturally ascendant. Um, you know, they didn't they didn't have control of Hollywood, obviously. They don't have control of a lot of the intelligentsia. But, you know, George W. Bush was a convert to evangelical Protestantism and, you know, choose the right uh, back in the late 1990s in sync used to, I think, pass like virgin bracelets or I don't know what they were called, but bracelets to show their, you know what I'm saying? Like cultural conservatism, Christianity was uh, not necessarily cool, but it was. A possibility now today actors in Hollywood who are clearly privately conservative Christians, uh, they try to cancel them on Instagram and stuff, you know, like call them out and like, you know, and so it's like the culture has totally changed. And to be entirely candid, I don't fear uh, 
conservative Protestants anymore. And um, as someone on the right um, that's been targeted for cancellation, you know, I do tell them, I'm like, you know, you might think I'm going to hell, uh, but, um, you know, we we got the same enemies at this point. Um, so you guys need to, like, chill out. Um, like, I'm pretty tolerant, but you're alienating people uh, if you think that it's still the year 1999. And you guys actually have a shot at cultural ascendancy. Like your goal should be to survive, uh, not to dominate, because you're not going to dominate. And a lot of them are pretty open about it now. I mean, why did they vote for Trump? He's obviously not a religious. He's obviously probably not even really a Christian. Like he, he's a cultural Christian, but he probably doesn't. I mean, he didn't. He doesn't. He didn't know what like uh, the Eucharist was. I mean, he doesn't know any of this stuff. Okay. Um, so, but they voted for him mostly because they thought he would defend them. And so that's all they, I mean, like a lot of them at this point have conceded they've lost the culture war. Um, and now what they want to do is retrench and survive. And so the configuration of everything is changing. When I was, when we were kids, being gay was dangerous in a lot of this country. And it's still not the best in a lot of this country, but, but, um, it's a world of difference now. It's a world of difference. You know, I have, um, very young male, gay, gay male friends who, um, you know, I tell them, I'm like, because like sometimes they'll be like, you know, you seem cool, but like some of the gay guys that I know your age, they're a little weird and like a little, you know, and I'm just like, okay, but you don't know how they grow. You don't, you didn't experience what they experienced, right? Where you had to like live a lie mm -hmm. of who you were, like as a teen, like you had to date and have girlfriends as a gay man in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, like maybe you could like come out as an adult, but you have to go through a fake phase or you might be physically in danger, you know. And so, you know, there are kids today, you know, I, I meet occasionally like, you know, undergraduates and stuff in their early 20s. And they're just like, yeah, like they, I don't understand why they're so jumpy and stressed. And I'm like, well, you don't have their life experience. Like you were like you entered your sexual years as a gay person, as you know, someone who liked the same sex without any shame or fear. And so that's just changed totally in a generation from what I've seen in large parts of the country, not everywhere and not in every subculture, you know, but uh, my point is like, uh, um, you know, things have changed a lot in my lifetime, some for the good and I think some for the bad, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. so that's just how it is. Yeah, the social discussion has definitely changed uh, over over a half a generation. And yeah. It's definitely the the popular opinion has has shifted quite a bit. Um, obviously, there's still, as you say, areas where it, it hasn't shifted, and I think it's the same thing on creationism that there are areas that are still dominated by the evangelical position in 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 small pockets, I guess. Um, and it's there are still a lot of people that are pushing an agenda into into schools. Uh, in in these areas where they try to uh, you know stop the teaching of evolution or or teach the controversy as which ends up being in an area where it's dominated by uh, these evangelicals it ends up damaging the the educational prospects of, of the children that are being indoctrinated uh, against evolution in that way I think so I think that's where this becomes an important issue is 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 in allowing kids to learn the science unopposed by by basically religious dogma you know, keep the religion in 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 the Sunday schools and keep the science in the science class um, and that's why I think it's important to get out the ideas and, and the discoveries of modern genetic science, because this is mm. I think this may be one of the reasons why the the uh, debate moved on is that the 
evidence from genetics after the Human Genome Project especially has been so deafeningly in favor of, of evolution that you have to actively hide your head in the sand to, to, to believe otherwise, I think. Yeah, like phylogenetics wouldn't exist without evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just like there's whole fields of science that are driven by genomics and big data uh, that just seem to confirm evolutionary. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, like the stuff that I do, I couldn't do it if evolution wasn't a thing. I don't know. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? You said phytogenetic. Phytogenetic? Phyl- well, I mean, so you're talking about you're, you're talking about phylogenetic reconstruction, right? Okay. Like, how does phylogenetic reconstruction of ancient proteins work? Well, it works by assuming the tree of life, by assuming uh, evolutionary processes, these branching processes. So none of this would work if evolution wasn't a thing. So let's just say if God created, you know, everything unique, you know, you know, to each unto his own kind, all that stuff. Like, why would you have a why would you have a tree of life that looks like this? Like, why is why does morphological similarity on these functions have correlations with evolutionary? You know, it's just like the whole thing is um, not structured. And as you know, um, it's not just like characteristics, it's genes like they're structured in a way where they look like they're contingent processes that uh, A leads to B. Leads to, but it's not like they're optimized perfectly. Yeah. That's an evolutionary process. That's not like a special creation process. Like if you're going to do a special creation, you'd create a small genome uh, without, you know, basically there's a lot of features of the genome that look like they're the process of like detritus from evolutionary history. They don't look like they're like adaptations. Well, why, why would you have that in the genome then? Yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're especially why would you add junk? If you're God, why would you add junk in the genome? Tell me that. You know what I'm saying? It's just like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like our genomes mostly junk. Human genomes mostly junk. That's an important point that a lot of a lot of people that aren't geneticists don't understand. Like we don't the, the genome doesn't lay out coding, 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 coding blocks. It's not like a recipe book where it all makes sense. It's more like um, you know start here and then there's a flipped pit here, but then go over this way and then reconstruct it this way, and there's a a big area of junk in between like i think what is it something like 95 percent of it is junk 99 it's, it's 99 it's about 99 so like basically what you say is like the exome the the protein coding um the the protein coding genome is about one percent of the three billion base pairs right something like that okay and then the rest of it is intergenic now some of it is like transcribed in weird ways but really it doesn't translate into protein um and there's arguments whether some of it might be functional uh in some way in tertiary dna structure those are complicated topics really the ultimate fundamental truth of it is 99 of the action happens in 99 or one percent of the genome okay uh for humans now for bacteria it's almost all genic and why is that? The argument is that bacteria are subject to really strong natural selection, so it selects even against junk DNA because um, the very act of replication, DNA replication in bacteria is actually under selection because they reproduce so fast. Their generation times are so fast that the very act of replication is a rate limiter. With humans, that's not true. 
like rate, uh, DNA replication is not a rate limiter. We live so long, and so there's no selection on the DNA replication process in terms of optimize. So this is a theory in terms of optimizing for a compact, uh, you know, wholly functional genome. Instead, we have all this crap that came on these retroposons, these uh, you know transposable elements and crap like that. Sure, sure. The energy that you need to to re re reconstruct all this junk doesn't hurt you. It's a negligible fraction of your of your life energy. Exactly. Exactly. That is is very cool. So, I didn't I didn't realize the difference between bacteria genomes and and higher higher organism genomes. We don't use the word higher organisms now. You want to use metasomes or complex <laughs> eukaryotes? I'm just saying, don't don't use the great chain of being, dude. You know what I'm saying? Uh oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> we, we ain't we ain't with Aristotle and Aquinas anymore, right? There's no. Uh, there's no higher or lower life forms. They're just life forms. We all descend from our common ancestors equally, uh, complex or not complex. I mean, what are what are mitochondria? Mitochondria are basically bacteria that were absorbed by some, you know, protist-like organism and turned into the cells. And here we are, you know, human beings, uh, you know, made in the flesh of of this like you know tree of evolution. I mean, if you're religious, made you know, like I said, like I don't really care about religion too much anymore. Partly because it's 2022, and that's not what the culture war is. But you know. Uh, people care and like, you know, if you're religious and you want to believe in evolution, I'm I'm fine with that, too. Actually, I don't I don't really care too much about whether you're religious or not. If you don't bug me, just, just don't tell me about like how I need to be religious to be moral or how, how like, you know, evolution's wrong because God said so. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. Now, if you say that, like, well, I believe in God and I believe in evolution, I don't want to hear about your God stuff. I don't care. But like, talk to me about evolution. That's what I want to hear about. That's what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely comes through in your writing. It's, it's, uh, uh, I think it's a fascinating subject, and I appreciate you know bringing this this to the to the people and and letting people know you know what is going on in this field because it's it's a it's a challenging and, and difficult field. You need a certain background to be able to understand what's going on. So I'm trying to kind of uh, illuminate the the science and just show you know how how solidly that this backs up the, the the theory of evolution and and now the theory of evolution there, there's not one quote unquote theory of evolution right there there are a lot of different theories of evolution as you hinted uh, earlier about neutral uh versus uh natural selection versus neutral flow versus punctuated equilibrium uh and there's lots of theories about how uh genomes uh, progress over time uh, to create uh, and what what pressure what selective pressures and what random things what the balance between these things are so that there's there's this controversy in the field that which is you know si normal in a healthy scientific field that is sometimes amplified by people who don't understand it or who are pushing an agenda to say that people don't agree on the theory of evolution and I think that's that's the wrong uh, thing to take away from a healthy scientific discover uh, investigation. We know that common ancestry is true. We know that universal common descent is a thing. This is this is you know so factual that there, you 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 almost cannot uh, disprove it at this point. It's so heavily uh, supported by the evidence, right? So we're not we're not worried about the 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 that. Evolution has happened in some way. We're, we're, we're arguing about the details at this point, right? Well, yeah. So I like, think about evolution. Think about evolutionary theory, Darwin's theory of, uh, you know, common descent with adaptation being driven by natural selection. 
uh, this idea of the tree of life. Think of that. I think listeners and viewers can think of that as, uh, you know, the scaffold of a house, the wooden or stone scaffold of a house, the superstructure. Like we're at the stage where like we're building the rooms and installing the tubs <laughs> and figuring out the exact layout. So if you're just like coming in, you're like, you know, like this scaffold, it's not right. I'm just like, okay, you know what? Like I'm, I'm working on some details here. Like I don't want to like have this stupid argument that like, oh, actually, we should do like a totally different scaffold because this doesn't work. And I'm like, it works. We got a roof, okay? We got a roof. The interior heating's, you know, I'm just remodeling now, okay? I'm figuring out the details. Like I'm not gonna have this argument about where the house should be built and how it should be built because it's done, okay? That's how I'm feeling. Like I don't want to have discussions about creationism because. Life is short. I'm going to die someday, hopefully later than sooner. And there's so much I want to know. There's so many papers I want to read. There's so many analyses I want to do. You know, it's like um, we have bitten of the apple. You shall be as gods, you know, like we shall know, you know, drift from selection, you know. And so, like, let's let's figure this out. You know, I was about to swear. I'm just like, let's figure this out. Like, this is how I feel when I like hear about creationism. I'm just like. Um, okay, can someone else take care of this? Because, like, I got stuff I want to do and stuff I want to learn. That's the stage I'm at. I'm not, like, a, you know, 18-year-old virgin that's, like, you know, taking my first biology classes, typing away um, in Pine, sending emails to creationists, you know? Like, yeah, that was me. I, 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 put, in my, I put in my dues. I put in my dues at the terminal, arguing about evolution and creation. Somebody else take it up right now because I got more important things to do, and this is an exciting time. I mean, arguably, my... My grown-ass adulthood has been the most exciting time in genetics since the first decade of the 20th century when the field first reemerged, um, when Mendel's ideas were rediscovered. You know, in terms of like we went from one human genome in the year 2000 that cost $3 billion to my son being sequenced in utero in 2014 to my whole family being sequenced for $200 each in 2020. Wow. $3 billion to $200 in 20 years. Okay? There's probably 10 million people sequenced right now, whole genome sequenced in the world. Okay? There's probably going to be 100 million in five years and then a billion in 15, 20 years. That's amazing. So where is this going? What is this going to tell us? Are we going to what, – what's the next discovery? Give me a prediction of what we're going to learn uh, in the coming years. Well, um, I think one of the things that is going to be heavily explored. So Darwin's original theory um, was predicated on adaptation through natural selection. Uh, we're going to understand a lot more about adaptation. Um, a lot of the stuff that I talk about on my newsletter and my blogs right now is about the tree of life, filling out the tree of life. Once you have the tree of life, you have a phylogeny. You can figure out how adaptation works within that phylogeny. And there's a lot of research groups that are doing the tree of life right now. Um, that will move to understanding the adaptive process, natural selection within the genome um, in the next couple of decades. Now, that is a very, very involved process because it's computationally much more intensive. There needs to be experimental science, bench science done to validate these functional pathways. What do they really do? Um, and so I think that's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm going to look at. That's what I'm going to see. Um, that's one of the major things. The other thing I, I do have to say, if you're a medical geneticist, and I am not, um, I, I do more population level work. Is, uh, is pretty straightforward that CRISPR-Cas9 genetic engineering is going to transform the possibilities. Uh, and we also talked about medical genetics, obviously, but, you know, what about agriculture? What about, uh, you know, domestic animals? Um, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there was a South Park episode where, like, uh, 
that um you know doctor island of doctor Moreau guys like creating pigs with three butts and stuff like that. We're gonna be able to cure <laughs> pigs with three butts. Like we're gonna be able to create man bear pig, you know? So uh I'm not saying that we should. I'm not saying that we should, but I'm just saying that like um there's gonna be some like rich dude in the Gulf who's like, I wanna create the horse camel. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like 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 ten years ago they actually entered uh commas uh male i think it was like the offspring of male camels and female llamas in camel races in the gulf and they kept winning because they're commas <laughs> right they got the the llama and then they were like you know like no more commas please like this is not fair like you know we're not going to do these transgenic uh animals mm-hmm. or trans species animals you know so Anyway, uh, you know, people are always trying to figure out an angle, and so science is going to be used for that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. I'm excited about the medical genetic discoveries and breakthroughs that are going to happen, but I am also curious about the weird things that we can't think about or realize. You know, maybe somebody wants to be like, you know, I want to be different. I want red skin, like literally red skin. So there's some like genetic topical treatment that you know does something with the cells in your face. But how do you go from r- red to unread? What if you want to change? You know, like if you get a tattoo, you can get the tattoo removed. Like it's hard sometimes, but you can do it. But what about like cells? Like, do you want to keep transforming your cells? Some people will. Someone like Joshua Zayner, uh, people like that, um, they will transform themselves just like people. There are always people who have like full body tattoos over over their whole body. And then whereas most people have one tattoo, most people who have tattoos have one tattoo. Most people that do genetic engineering will do it for, you know, one or two reasons, usually disease. Um, But there's going to be some people that actually want to re-engineer themselves in some deep ways, you know, and uh, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. Well, this this is a this is an interesting conversation that that we've broached here and uh you're right. We need to have this discussion because the capabilities are going to be there. And if society doesn't start talking about them, there's good, there's going to be uh, people doing things like you say, there's going to be camels, with camels, <laughs> with, three butts. camels uh, with, three butts with three butts, camels with three butts, and someone's going to want to start fiddling with their own DNA. So this is some, this is a, a timely conversation and thank you for, for bringing it to our attention. And, and thank you also for, for helping us understand evolution and genetics and, and where the field is going. I really appreciate having you on the show. Razib. Yeah. My, my pleasure, Al. I'm going to, I'm going to send you uh, a rational view t-shirt if you'd like. Uh, so you can, uh, you can, you can represent uh, to you, to your audience as well. Uh, and All right. just going to leave it with the last question. Uh, what kind of science fiction do you like? What kind of, um, so I mostly like Stephen Baxter type stuff. I haven't been reading science fiction very much over the last 10 years, partly cause like, you know, I got three kids, I got jobs, I got stuff on social media to do, uh, defend myself from cancellation for the 12th time, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, um, but, um, I like Stephen Baxter. I really like hard science fiction. Uh, Robert L. Forward stuff was a little bit much for me. Cause like he just focused a little bit on the science, but you know, sometimes I like the Hal Clement short stories. And then every now and then, um, I like a uh, Werner, Werner Vinge space opera, you know, uh, deepness in the sky and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I actually nice. met Werner Vinge uh, a couple of times, singularity summit in the late two thousands. Um, I had beers with him, like, although he didn't know who I was and I barely talked to him, but I was like, I'm talking to Werner Vinge. And I'm sure like everyone else was thinking that when they're having a beer with him. too. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I like that stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. My pleasure, Al. 
If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.